Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in career development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, and in addition to podcasting, I'm a leadership and mastermind coach, a strategy and fundraising consultant, a speaker, and an author. Yes, check out my book, also titled Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, if you'd like a copy. Or want to check out any of the resources or programs we offer, just go to PattonMcDowell.com. Well, thanks as always for listening, and I know you're going to enjoy this conversation I had with Bill Connors, who literally made me rethink my top 10 list of essential skills and experiences to be a successful nonprofit leader. Now, the story behind this is that my colleague Lee Williams and I were presenting at AFP's International Conference in Las Vegas uh, back in early May of 2022. And Bill raised the point that nonprofit leaders are going to have to add technology management to that set of essential leadership skills. And I think he's absolutely right. Now, Bill is not just telling you to get into the weeds of computer programming or something like that, but you are likely going to have to be more proactive in managing the multiple technologies that affect every aspect of your nonprofit organization, from fundraising to HR to finance and programming. You simply can't delegate or outsource this away. Now, fortunately for us, Bill has great ideas and insight to help you with this leadership tool. And it's clear that he is good at what he does, given his experience as a fundraiser and technology expert for more than three decades. This episode will give you ideas and the confidence to address leadership in this space of technology management. More reason to check out the show notes for this episode. It's number 165. Just go to the new podcast page at patmcdowell.com, and you'll find all of the resources Bill and I discuss, as well as more information on the great work he's doing through his consulting and training practice. Uh, he's working with nonprofit leaders just like you, and you need to check it out. Just go to BillConnors.com. That's Connors, C-O-N-N-O-R-S, BillConnors.com. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Bill Connors. Bill, thank you for joining me on the path. Thanks, Patton. It's really great to be here. I appreciate your taking this topic seriously and inviting me to be able to speak today. So thank you. Well, I'm excited about this conversation because you raised the topic better than I ever did. And I have to tell our listeners a story because my colleague Lee Williams and I were at AFP's ICON, the International Conference in Las Vegas. And we were talking about the essential skills and experiences that we believe nonprofit leaders need to have. And you raised a fabulous point that I had not really considered. And you said, basically, Patton, nonprofit leaders, particularly going forward, are going to have to understand and manage technology. And I was struck by that. And of course, you and I connected after the conference, and it led to this exact episode. So again, Bill, thank you for raising a point that I think I'm not the only one that maybe has underestimated the importance of technology in nonprofit leadership. So clearly, we'll talk more about your story and your deep into the technology space. But what do right. you see as the biggest challenge? I guess what maybe raised this point even more in your consciousness as you work with nonprofit leaders and what are some of the challenges you see them facing? Sure, Patton. I would say to summarize my, my work with organizations and my impression on this topic is that nonprofit leaders 
don't take technology seriously enough and that there's a need for more serious attention to technology within organizations. So you led with the statement that technology is a vital skill of any nonprofit leader. And I'm not sure that many or most nonprofit leaders uh, see that. And so my take on it is that if you're a leader in a nonprofit organization, you are a CEO of some sort. Now, if you're the executive director, of course, you're the chief executive officer. But even if you're the chief development officer, you are a CEO. You are a CEO of the development team. And in the 2020s, every CEO needs a CIO. And I often don't see that awareness. Let me explain a little bit more about that. So a chief development officer, for example, does not need to be a CPA, but they need to have some finance knowledge. It would not be appropriate for the chief development officer to go to a senior leadership meeting and not know what an income statement is and not know what a balance sheet is and not be able to participate in the finance discussions of the organization at a senior management level. Absolutely right. Every head of development, again, whether it's director of development or vice president of advancement, whatever the title is, needs to have some basic HR knowledge. It would be inappropriate for a head of development in an interview of a woman to ask the woman if she plans to get pregnant. We know that that's an illegal (laughs) and inappropriate question. Right. So you don't have to be able to go be head of HR for a Fortune 500 company, but you do have to have some level of HR knowledge. And Patton, it's my argument and, and my experience that a head of development, a head of an organization, head of a, of a nonprofit organization needs to have a management level understanding of IT and managing the technology and, and what that means for an organization. So, you know, you may not know the difference between CRM, SQL, and HTML. I'm, I'm not asking for a leader to be a techie. Right. But as a leader, as a manager, it's about managing the people and the processes. In fact, it's not actually the technology. It's the people and the processes around technology. Um, Can I give you three quick examples? Oh, yeah. Well, I was going to ask you just that because I think, well, one, you're on to something. And I, before you give your examples, I think you're absolutely right. We don't take it seriously enough. And I've been involved in a lot of senior level interview processes lately, Bill. And, and these interview processes are not asking the question. They're not asking. They're asking everything else you said, mm-hmm. HR, mm-hmm. board management, fundraising, you know, all the elements that you would think are important to senior leadership. But not once have I heard a good candidate been be asked about their technology management. And that that's the distinction you're making, right? We don't have to get in the weeds, right. but we are going to have to manage it enough or be aware of it to get, uh, you know, make progress. Exactly. And, and that doesn't surprise me in my experience that chief fundraisers are hired for their fundraising background and their fundraising knowledge and their ability to raise money for the organization. And probably my guess would be most executive directors or the CEO of nonprofits are hired for either their mission background and their ability to grow the mission or the organization or their ability to bring resources. But fundamentally, in both their spheres 
And even if you're the CFO or the chief program officer, there is a technical component in the 2020s to all of these positions. Yes, indeed. Well, it will tell us. So you, I guess, have seen literal examples of this or the deficiency of this exact uh, process? Absolutely. So one of the examples would be allowing staff who newly start at the organization to bring with them their, in their minds the technology that they have previously used and want to immediately change the technology that the organization currently uses. So the best example would be, oh, I've hired a new special events person. Well, they use program A, we use program B, they like program A. So suddenly we're supposed to be allowing them to change the technology we use because that's what they're familiar with. Or we hire a new communications person and they've used technology X to do the email communication to our constituents, but we use technology Y, and now they want us to change over to the technology that they're aware of because it's it's what they, they're used to. So sometimes I see leaders allow the staff to change technology, like we might ch- change an app on our iPhone or, or Android phone, and that does not work very well. It's not good for the long-term efficiency and sustaining work of the organization to be swapping out technology because a new staff person has come on staff. That's such a good point, but it it absolutely happens. And I think it speaks to your point of us not taking it seriously enough, because I would suggest the mindset of many nonprofit leaders, and, and again, we're not bashing them, but they've in essence delegated it in their mind to this position, right? They've isolated it and delegated it. So when the new person comes in, we're like, all right, I don't really care. I'll just let you use the technology you want to use. But Bill, that's your point, right? And that's where we can fall into a trap. Exactly. And that's why I say that it's not about actually the technology. As a leader, it's about managing the people and the processes. So I don't want a CEO or a CDO to be worried about whether it should be MailChimp or Constant Contact. What I would want a leader to worry about is what are the processes among my team so that a good, solid, long-term decision can be made that once selected will serve the organization and my, my people on the team will be able to get their jobs done and will be able to rely on that technology that it will be around for a while so that policies, procedures, security, training, documentation can be developed to support it. Um, Another element of this and and somewhat of a second example would be, again, less focused on the technology per se and more focused on the data behind it. So another example of this is getting email software because it writes has the capability to produce pretty emails (laughs) and giving very secondary or tertiary relevance to the data behind it. You know, let's just, we're just going to pick the software and then we're going to tell our database person who has had nothing to do with the selection of the software Uh that, oh, we've now picked software X. And so they now need to figure out how to get the data into the email program so we can start sending the emails. Well, our donors subscribing and unsubscribing, our constituents doing those same activities, that's 
Actually, what the email program is all about is to get engagement from our constituents. And we need to be respecting, recording, understanding that engagement, not putting focus on the communications person who wants to make a pretty clever email, but understanding the data behind it and how that's going to support our operations. So well put. Again, I perhaps have been guilty myself. It's the uh, the bright, shiny penny, right, of the right. email production you describe. And as a manager, I've done a poor job, right? And again, I have not taken seriously the embedded, I guess, technology elements. And, and I know, Bill, you're going to help us unpack this because I think there are a lot of listeners right now nodding their head like, uh-oh, I have been guilty of this. Again, because, and I, I guess I'll ask this question, Bill, to you, the root cause, I'm not taking it seriously because I've either delegated it or in some case, I guess you see uh, nonprofit leaders, they kind of outsourced it, either literally or mentally, they've outsourced it and they just aren't taking the time to really understand the, the deeper technology issues that you're describing. Agree. And I think that many of them just don't understand it. That as we'll likely talk about, yeah, right. if you go to a fundraising conference, even in many of the formal fundraising and nonprofit management programs that exist, the technology and managing the technology and the people and processes behind it do not get the attention they need. And so most people come to nonprofit leadership without formal education in the field. And so we just are not giving our leaders the exposure and the training and the continuing ed on this topic that they need. And so they just legitimately don't know what they don't know. Yeah, that's well put. And I feel certain that our listeners, many of them are going to probably want to find you, Bill, and have, have some conversation because it's a blind spot, right? You said it well, they don't know what they don't know, but now at least perhaps this conversation alerts them to that reality, if they want to have a well, well-rounded leadership profile and advance in their career, they need to address this. And let's talk about though your kind of passion for this cause. Tell me about your journey. What what brought you to this crossroads of leadership and technology? Sure. So it's a long story, and I'll keep it short. And if there are aspects of it <laughs> that you think would be interesting to you and the listeners, I'm happy to expand on it. Because although I'm in my mid-50s, I've been at this work for about 35 years. I was fortunate in high school to go all the way back that far uh, to have been impacted strongly by a nonprofit organization called Junior Achievement. So Junior Achievement is a business and economic education program, and it had a major impact on my life in high school, nice. especially the national student conference that I would attend during the summers. And so I parlayed that student experience into summer jobs with the national organization while I was going to college and graduate school and then turned that into a full-time job with the national office on the student conference and then went from there and became a director of development for the junior achievement office in Phoenix. So the first part of my career was all about junior achievement. And I was a, a director of development for junior achievement in, in Arizona in the mid 90s. And when I got there, there was literally one computer. Uh, this was, again, the early 90s. It sat against the wall. It was the DOS, you know, with the black screen and the, and the, the green text. And its sole job was to print receipts for donors. Wow. 
And so I had purchased a computer in graduate school to write my thesis and I brought it into the office and I had a good relationship with my boss and I said, we should have computers for the office. And she said, fine, you're director of development, go make it happen. And so we eventually went out and and got an appreciated stock gift and bought the parts and went to Microsoft and got a donation. And in the process, found that I really enjoyed the technology. And one of those steps was to, to acquire a database. And so to make a very long story short, we bought 200 copies of the Razor's Edge for the national organization in the mid nineties. And it's one of those stories where I kept telling the national office, you need to get someone to oversee this product. You need to get someone to oversee this project. And I woke up one night and said, oh my gosh, that's a job that I would like to have. There you go. And so that's how I, I switched from fundraising work into the technology work. And I want to take a moment here, since your podcast series is about leadership, to call out my boss at Junior Achievement at the time uh, and talk about how leadership cannot just change the lives of people that are the, the subjects of our missions as organizations, but also how leader, good leaders can actually change the lives of staff because that leader, rather than saying, hey, Bill, your job is to raise money, not fool with this technology stuff you like, she actually encouraged me in my passion, supported me in the passion, and literally changed my life in allowing me to pursue this career that I've been on. So Good for her. Uh, a yeah, shout great out example. to Bill and to, to the kind of leadership that actually cares about employees. Anyway, I went on to the national office and oversaw a Razor's Edge project there for a few years and parlayed that into employment at BlackBot and helped BlackBot start their consulting program um, in the late 90s. BlackBot had a great training program, but no consulting. And so I helped BlackBot start their consulting program and did that for seven years and then went nice. out on my own in 2005 and have been self-employed as a consultant since then. That's awesome. And, and again, relevant, of course, that you have actually been on the front line as a fundraiser. So you appreciate these issues, not just from the technology side, but from the nonprofit fundraising side and leadership side. And well, and talk about, Bill, what exactly type of consulting work you do. Obviously, it's technology based, but yeah, what give our listeners an example of the type of work you do. Certainly. So my entire practice focuses on one product, which is the Razor's Edge from BlackBod. So for those who may not know, Razor's Edge is a fundraising database or CRM. And so I help organizations convert to it. I help them solve problems. I help them implement new modules and new processes like major gifts or a recurring donor program or a volunteer management program or setting up events and running events through the software as well as help organizations through staff changes. So training a new database manager, helping a new leader of an organization that's grappling with the database that she's inherited and is not quite sure what shape it's in <laughs> and needs an independent assessment of, of what she now has on her hands. So I do that kind of work. I'm very much in the weeds of the day-to-day -day use of technology in the fundraising profession. Yeah, it's fantastic. And again, I can't tell you how many leaders I've talked to and you described it well. They're new to the job and trying to figure out the database they've inherited or the right. database they believe is is broken and they right. need to fix it. And it just sounds like you can provide counsel in many different scenarios that are all too common 
for leaders. So I'm going to encourage our listeners, of course, to check out the show notes so they can find you, Bill, and have that conversation. But let's keep going because you've got a good, as we titled this episode, the the traps, if you will, the, the technology challenges that often confront a nonprofit leader and love the way you started. You know, one, number one is they don't take it seriously enough. Um, talk about the next one. What is the second trap or challenge you most see nonprofit leaders dealing with? Well, certainly. So it's not to be that cutesy consultant who tries to be too clever, but <laughs> I broke this down into three S's just, uh, it happened coincidentally. So it worked out well. So the second thing that I would bring out is staffing that I repeatedly see in my work um, staff who are responsible for the organizations or the department's technology who need, let's say, who need greater attention in their work. It's about this theme about taking technology more seriously. There are lots of good people. I think of Jenny and Dominique and Joe, as uh, just quick examples of real people who do this work really well. But I also see a lot of this person has been, is, is our database person because 20 years ago, they were filling out the index cards that went into the shoe boxes of how we used to keep things in the good old days. Or this person is our database manager because this is their very first job and they showed some aptitude for technology. And so what we need, I would argue, is that we need to be putting our technology, our data people on par with the specialists that we have, certainly in the development side of the house, that we have as specialists for fundraising. So most teams will have an annual fund direct marketing person, They'll have an events person. They'll have a major gifts person. We need to look at data management in this day and age as a a topic that requires equal subject matter expertise and hire and pay and treat people at that kind of level of a manager director level rather than as a glorified support person so that they can be the thoughtful, proactive leader of data projects for us. So as we were talking about for a few minutes ago, I don't expect a CEO, a CDO to personally lead a software selection process, whether it's event software, email software, or CRM, but there should be somebody on the team who has the capability to do that. There should be somebody on the team who has the initiative to say, the vendor has released multi-factor authentication. I need to proactively roll this out. It's best practice in our field to create documentation. I should be creating documentation on our unique policies and procedures. They should have the initiative and ability to say, our fundraisers, our users are not using the system to the capacity that they should. I should initiate a training program. Patton, what I see a lot in my work is the most meek person on the team is the data person who is there waiting to be told, waiting to be asked what to do, rather than a leader and a proactive initiator of the work around technology and data management. And so we need to up 
the level of expectation of the staff we put in these positions. And again, I'm not talking about hiring IT people. I'm talking about hiring people within our fields, whether that is on the program side or the fundraising side, but who can manage the data needed for those areas of the organization to work effectively. So that would be the second point is around staffing. You make a great point. And it, it reminds me that the staffing and, and just simply elevating the function of yes. the IT. And, and you're again right on target. And I've seen it and perhaps have been guilty of it. The default staffing model is that uh, the, the, the often just the administrative support person also, by the way, you're going to manage the database. And so I guess your point, Bill, is we've automatically put technology in no offense to that person, but perhaps we've given it to someone who's not qualified to lead it. And therefore we put ourselves in a hole right away. Exactly. And here's another example. I I understand this. I mean, this is what I do. So I understand the nuances more clearly than others, but what's common, especially in smaller and mid-sized organizations is to say the database manager should also be the gift processor, should do the data entry of gifts and constituent record updates, process address changes and so forth. Right. And it seems like it is logical for a lot of nonprofit leaders because it's around data. But when one stops and thinks about the skills, the personality type, the the life experience, the professional experience that those two roles need, They're actually very different skill sets and personality types. I think it's better to give a database manager who needs to have initiative, who needs to have writing ability, who needs to be a problem solver, give them work in fundraising or other areas of support of the organization before you ask them to be a gift processor and do data entry. A gift processor likes routine, a gift processor likes to be told what to do, a gift processor likes to be left alone where they can quietly focus on lots of detail to get it right. It's different personality types that do that work, that two types of work. And we need leaders who understand that and will hire those positions separately and see the commonality of the personality types in the work and not the database as the common thread. Again, my wheels are turning, Bill, because you're right on target. And I think, again, it strikes me that a a tactic to address this staffing issue is we need to think more uh, intentionally about the job description or the expectations of the function as opposed to defaulting to the skill set of the person that happens to be at that desk, so to speak, of gift entry, right? And sounds like that's what you see too much of. We've just defaulted into the gift entry person as our all-encompassing data technology person, and and they simply may not have the ability to do so. Correct. Another example would be thinking that the database managers or administrators, whatever title is used, their job is to give me lists and to give me reports and to do And that very well may be a large portion of the job, but in today's technology, all these systems, whether it's Razor's Edge or Salesforce or Boomerang or DonorPerfect or or MailChimp or whatever, have a level of administrative responsibility that requires paying attention to security, paying attention to configuration, 
ongoing maintenance, understanding as the software is upgraded and changed, creating policy and procedure documentation, training the staff. And so a true leader or a database manager of the technology is proactively doing work that the rest of the staff may have no idea even exists. Yep. Yep. To be done. Their job is not just to be the quote unquote glorified secretary giving data to the staff when asked. All right. Um, wheels are definitely turning. I can imagine listeners are nodding their head. However, we are going to, have, of course, have to come back to Bill. All right. If we agree with you, you got to help us. <laughs> right? right. I think this this first part is acknowledging our weaknesses and the traps we have been guilty of falling into. But before we do that, let's hit the third one. All right. Sure. You've told us we got to we got to take it seriously. We've got to rethink staffing. What's the third area that we need to be thinking about? We must take security much more seriously than I see most organizations doing. Yep. Yep. That's an ominous but appropriate (laughs) warning, isn't it, Bill? It it sadly is. And unfortunately, one of the biggest outcomes of the pandemic is the meteoric rise in attempts of hacking and data breaching and phishing attempts and all of those bad actors after our data. It has got the the percentages and the numbers have gone through the roof. And I don't see most organizations taking this as seriously as they should. Are you good for some examples? Yeah, because case in point, I just had a, a depressing conversation with a friend executive director who has in fact dealt with exactly that. And and we are fooling ourselves, aren't we, Bill, if we think, well, we're in the nonprofit sector, we're not really going to be susceptible to this stuff. Clearly, we are. And so, yes, what examples are you seeing? Well, we are very susceptible. So let me give you some specific examples so listeners can think about how to apply this concern. A first example would be what's called multi-factor authentication, sometimes called two-factor authentication and how so many organizations I've seen and worked with have been so reticent to turn it on. So briefly, what it means is that when you sit down and log into a website or into an application, not only are you required to provide a login name and password, but then you are either sent via text or must go to an app on your phone and get what's usually a six-digit code and enter it into the login process as well. It's based on the principle of something you know, i.e. a password, as well as something you have, like a phone. And so it requires both points of entry in order to get into the data. Does that make sense, Patton? Yeah, absolutely. And it, okay. thanks for the explanation, because it tell us though, where you're gonna take us based so on the, cons- the concern is, and I get it, it's a royal pain in the, you know, you know what, to have to do that extra step. Every time I log in, not only do I have to remember this complicated password if I'm doing password security well, now I have to pull out my phone and load the app and get the number and type it in. I fully acknowledge, I mean, as someone (laughs) who does this multiple times a day, I fully acknowledge what a pain it is. But study after study after study have demonstrated it is the single biggest help 
to keep the bad actors out of our data because passwords are far more easily cracked than the multi-factor authentication level, which provides that second level of protection. Um, I don't know how well this is widely known. It is public information, so I'm not telling tales out of school here. Yeah. But most of us in the field have probably heard about the data breach that BlackBot had in 2020. Yeah. Um, that was caused by a user not having multi-factor authentication turned on and the user's password getting hacked and the, the whoever it was, the bad actor who got into the BlackBot data, getting through that user's login name and password. Wow. If they had had multi-factor authentication turned on, possibly that whole poor episode could have been avoided. So that's, that's an example of, yes, we have to acknowledge multi-factor authentication as a pain, but there should be no question. It should be a matter of practically taking a, uh, an employee to the point of firing if they're not turning on and using multi-factor authentication properly. We need to take security at that level of seriousness. Yeah, and your point is well made. And yes, there is the hassle factor, but boy, a breach is the ultimate hassle, right? And so you don't need to hear, you shouldn't need to as a nonprofit leader to hear many more examples like that to the absolute destruction that a, a hacker can cause. Yes. And so Bill, yeah, you shouldn't have to tell us twice and I would encourage our listeners, right? I guess that's what you would say. One is is identify exactly what you're doing now to protect your data. And if you're not doing things like that, then you need to ramp it up. Well, a couple of other quick examples is be thoughtful about the creation of spreadsheets from your CRM, from your fundraising database, and how they're distributed and where they're stored and do they get destroyed. Think about all the major wow. spreadsheets that are out there with our best and most wealthy donors and their contact information and their giving history. What becomes of those spreadsheets? Yep. Uh, think about the security of your CRM. One of the ironies is many leaders think that because they're the leader, they should have full administrative, full supervisor access to the database. And that's actually the opposite of the truth. Generally, the higher you go in leadership, the less your rights should be in good database management. Why is that? Why is that, Bill? Because I mean, right. it seems counterintuitive, but tell us. It, it does. And it is contrary to what we used to do 20 and 30 years ago. But the reason it's, it's called the principle of least privilege in the IT world. And it is we best protect the data by giving people the fewest rights they need to do their job. Okay. And so a leader should be putting in their contact history, putting in some notes, but they don't need rights to globally delete records. No. They don't need rights to, to globally change information. They need rights to do their job, which is to put in the contact information. Only the database staff should have global rights as an example. Makes sense. And well, I guess I'm wondering if the, the, the strategy for hacking would go after the more senior leader anyway. So we need to protect those that perhaps could be vulnerable to an attack. Or in this case, it's just you're saying across the board, it's not really an anti-hacking strategy. It's just don't put someone in a position where they can make a mistake. Well, think about it this way. The, the more, more windows you have on your house, the more opportunity for break-in. 
the bigger those windows are, the more space the the robber is going to have to get in. If you have small portal windows around your house that a human being can't get in, then the robber is not going to be able to get into your house. So the smaller the windows are into your database or your CRM, uh, the less likely they're going to be able to get in. And if they do get in, the less damage they're going to be able to do. Yeah, makes perfect sense. And all of this, again, has opened my eyes. And I dare say many of our listeners that like, all right, Bill, we hear you. We have not taken it seriously. We've not staffed appropriately. Uh, We are kind of not putting the kind of time and energy into our technology that we need to, particularly around security. So I'm not a techie. What do I do about it? I mean, I have an idea, but let me you should start this this part of the conversation. What does a nonprofit leader do who is now nodding their head, agreeing with you? Where do I start? Sure. So this field of technology and data management within the nonprofit sector is perhaps the prime example where good leaders and good managers do not need to be able to do everything their employees do. A a good manager and a good leader does not need to know more than their staff who is responsible for this area. This is is a subject matter area where the best thing that a good manager and a good leader can do is hire somebody who knows this area, knows this area well, and be there to support them and back them up. There, it's just not necessary for someone who aspires to be a chief development officer or a chief executive officer. They don't need to learn a lot of technology. What they need to do is they need to spend time with the data people they have. It's the old take them out to lunch kind of thing (laughs) and say, tell me what you do. Tell me where I can support you more. Tell me where you need more resources. Tell me what the challenges are that you have. Tell me what the challenges you have with the rest of the staff where I can support you so that you know I have your back. So if I've got a major gift officer who won't implement the multi-factor authentication, my database manager knows that my chief development officer has my back. And if the major gift officer doesn't do what they need to do, the, the CDO is going to back me up. Yes, indeed. Pay attention just to the day-to-day press. Uh, this exponential increase of, of attacks on data stores, uh, of our databases, of our CRMs, is certainly, of course, not unique to the nonprofit field. It's, it's hitting the mainstream press. It's on CNN and on NBC News and so forth. So stop and think as you hear about what's happening in the for-profit world on the news, stop and think and ask yourself, how can I apply this to my organization? Um, Those are the kinds of things that I think nonprofit leaders need to do. Um, The sad thing is you're probably not gonna go to an AFP conference. You're probably not gonna go to the fundraising school. You're probably not gonna go to those kinds of resources and get good training in this area. What you need to do is to use the staff you have and learn from them and encourage them to come to you with ideas and recommendations. Well put, Bill. 
and and I'm struck by and, and you can tell me whether this would be a good idea of organizations having kind of technology processes and procedures in in writing a technology plan in fact would that be a way to kind of first assess where we are and then put something on paper to maybe identify security measures I, I'm thinking that perhaps would provide some continuity if there's transition in staffing. But do you see technology plans at organizations? And is that even a, a tactic to consider if I'm a nonprofit leader? So I rarely see them. And the irony in the work that I do is that usually when leaders start and they reach out to me, one of the first comments they say is, and there's no policy and procedure documentation, and then what many of them end up doing is not creating it and not requiring and allowing their staff time to do it. Yep. And so it becomes a self-perpetuating cycle where we complain about it and then perpetuate it. So you would agree, though, that perhaps taking the time to put put it down in writing again would be a, a, a something to consider if I'm trying to you know, upgrade my technology as an organization? Absolutely. But Patton, let me give a word of advice about how to do it most effectively based on my experience. What most organizations are trying to do when they do it or they ask their staff to do it is they end up rewriting their vendor's user guide. So here's how you log in. Here's how you add a new donor. Here's how you add a gift. And that is actually a waste of time. Uh, a lot of leaders will ask their staff to create this documentation so that they could pull somebody off the street and put them in front of the documentation to teach the software. And I would suggest that's wasted effort. Um, I absolutely believe in written policy and procedure documentation, but the key is it should address an educated, informed user of the software and only address what is specific to that organization's use of the software. So as an example, don't explain what a soft credit is in Razor's Edge. Tell me how our organization uses soft credits. Don't explain to me what a constituent code is. Give me definitions of what the constituent codes are in our copy of the database and why those definitions are what they are. Great example and important distinction. You're right. There's no need to be redundant with what the manual already has, right? But it's those unique elements that for our organization that need to be defined. So new person coming in could at least um, better address, right, those unique elements where we right. are. What I tell folks is pretend you're writing the manual for me. Um, no, no, don't, don't mean to be immodest here, but... I don't need a user to explain to me how to use Razor's Edge. Right. right. I need them to explain to me is how and why their copy of the database is set up the way it is. If, if they win the lottery and are out the door and their, their boss calls me to produce the next newsletter list, I need to know how to produce that list from their database based on the way their database is set up. I don't need to know what buttons to click. And so whether it's Salesforce or Donor Perfect or Exceed or MailChimp, don't teach me the software. Tell me how your copy is set up. Well put, Bill. Uh, again, um, 
you mentioned the the pandemic in many ways has accelerated some of these security issues. Yes. Have you have you seen other accelerations in the technology field? Perhaps some good ones that have occurred as a result of the pandemic. Uh, in addition to, unfortunately, the negative ones like security breach. Sure. Well, one of the positives of this has been the acceleration of the move to the cloud by nonprofits. Uh, nonprofits tend to be behind the curve with when it comes to technology, not on the leading edge. Of course, there are exceptions of that and many forward-thinking nonprofits that are on the bleeding edge of technology. But as a general rule, nonprofits tend to be uh, generally behind the curve. And so many organizations have not moved their, their data, whether it's database type data or their documents type data, they were still on local servers, on local machines. And so the pandemic has moved a lot of that to the cloud very quickly. And, and that's a positive because it not only allowed for people to be able to work remotely when it was pre-pandemic, the kind of remote working that was more casual and working extra hours, but of course has enabled us now to have this new hybrid work environment where some people are able to work fully remotely. And so that, that would be the biggest change is just moving our technology to the cloud. Yeah, I agree. And, and it seems to me that offers some, not just backup, but some security advantages too, right? If we do it correctly, and so that is uh, perhaps a silver lining of this pandemic that we all need more of. It um, is after seeing many servers in basements or in, out in the open where it'd be the first computer that a thief would take if they walked into the office. Right. There are many security advantages actually of having data in the cloud rather than in a computer in your office. Yep, absolutely right. And well, Bill, going back to your history as a fundraiser yourself in the early days, um, any any advice or tips in terms of just utilizing technology better around fundraising? In other words, it's not just data management, but you've seen it applied. And I wonder if there are certain headlines or highlights when you think about you know better organizing your data to be effective in fundraising. I think for fundraisers and for leaders, I would boil it down to two things in terms of personally as a leader and as a user being more effective. The first is, it's 2022, you need to be using some of the technology yourself. Um, when I started in this work, perhaps Pat, and when you started in this work, technology was a, were back office tools. Right, and right. So we had staff that did that, and it was kind of a black invisible box. And if I needed information, I would go to the back office staff, and then they would produce it for me. All of the vendors, again, BlackBot, Salesforce, Donor Perfect, Boomerang, all of them have changed so that just as a fundraiser today has a computer on her desk, they have a smartphone in their pocket, they should be using the technology themselves. There's, there's a level of self-service that these programs have been designed to support users who are executives, who are leaders, and for the day-to-day -day work, as well as being the model for their team, folks should be using the software themselves. Yeah, good advice. The second point I would make is what we've been spending this time talking about, which is to educate and inform yourself as a leader 
on technology to support your team to stay informed, but don't be overwhelmed by it. Where nonprofits need leaders involved with technology, it's around good management. It's not asking the, the leaders to be techies. And so don't be intimidated, don't be overwhelmed, but also don't be uninformed. We need proactive leadership, we need proactive support, but that can be done without your having to be a techie yourself. And so step into that, welcome that, be part of that, and you'll actually be more successful with technology in your organization if you don't try and get into the weeds, if you let the team do what they need to do, but you're still involved in the process. Very well put. You know, it's a strategic approach, isn't it? Not a good management approach, but leads to better leadership, in my opinion, if we don't get entangled. And you said it very well at the beginning. Just as we approach all the areas as the CEO, we don't have to be an HR expert. We don't have to be a finance expert. We don't have to be an expert in anything, but we have to be a good leader of those areas and strategic in our oversight. And I think that's a great reminder. And, And I'm struck, Bill, again, by the great advice you've offered here is that this, I hope, elevates technology at the senior table of your nonprofit organization, right? Because I don't think, to your earlier point, as we think about the, the kind of proverbial leadership table, technology is not there in many organizations, right? It's not. It's not. Even in day-to-day meetings, the, the data folks are not in, literally not invited to the exactly. table. Exactly. whether it's a conference room table or, or a Zoom meeting, and they're told after the fact what the decision has been made. The, the data leader, whatever their title and role is for your team, needs to have a seat at the table and be a proactive participant in the process. Bill, we could, we could probably drop the mic on that point alone for you, but uh, I don't want you to drop the mic yet. Fantastic advice, uh, thought-provoking, I think, for our listeners. Is there anything else in addition to all that you've shared, kind of final advice for a nonprofit leader listening that you'd want them to consider as you kind of put this whole topic in front of them? Uh, Patton, if I could get more nonprofit leaders to do the things we've already talked about, I think I would be happy. But more importantly, I think a lot of the people I work with who are like me, who are in organizations, who really want to do the right thing, who really want to have a voice at the table, who really want to help the organization do more and do better, I think they would be happy and they would be able to deliver more for their leaders if folks would just do what we've talked about. So I don't want to add any more at this point. I just want to reinforce If if they can do what we've talked about, I think they're going to be happier. They're going, the the leaders are going to be complaining less about their team and about their data and about their reports, and they're going to have more successful teams. Well put once again, and your beautiful three S headlines here, take it seriously, focus on the staffing and, and elevate security for sure. Three S's, Bill Connors, well done. Um, I'm going to have to ask you for a parting gift, however, in addition to the three S's that they're thinking now, as you know, every guest I ask, has there been a book meaningful to you, Bill, that you might uh, share with our listeners to add to their 
their list? Absolutely. So the book that I would recommend is called The Artful Journey. It's called, uh, the subtitle is Cultivating and Soliciting the Major Gift, written by William Sturdivant. By far the most effective trainer and training I have attended in my 30 plus year career wow. in fundraising has nothing to do with databases or data management, has everything about thoughtfully thinking through how you conduct a major gift program. And I cannot say enough good things about it. Wow. I'm making a note of that as our listeners should be as well. We'll of course lift that up in the show notes as well as Bill, where can people find out more about you and the great work you're doing? Thanks for that, Patton. So everything that I have to say and all the resources I have to offer can be found at my website, which is simply billconnors.com. And just for clarity, since there are a lot of variations of my last name, it's C-O-N-N-O-R-S. So billconnors.com. Fantastic. I encourage our listeners to check it out. Go to the show notes and you can find out more about the resources Bill and I talked about. And of course, connect with Bill himself. Bill, for all this, thank you again for joining me on the path. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Patton. Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Bill as much as I did and came away like me, maybe with a new perspective on how you manage technology at your nonprofit organization. Don't forget to check out the show notes for this episode. It's number 165. Just go to our website, PattonMcDowell.com, and you'll find out more about Bill and the kind of work he does and the resources he has available at his website, BillConnors.com. As always, thanks for sharing this episode with someone else on the path. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe. Just go to the podcast page. Once again, PattonMcDowell.com. And you'll see the follow button, which will allow you to subscribe as well as link you to all of the primary podcast platforms. Don't miss out on any of our weekly episodes. They come out every Thursday. And if you like this one, click on that episodes button at the top of the page. You can scroll through thumbnails of some of our most popular episodes or search by topic or guest name. Thanks again for all you're doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now. And keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week. I'll see you next time on The Path.